If you would go in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 is where we'll be tonight, Genesis chapter 12. As we start this Sunday night series through Genesis 12 through chapter 50, kind of picking up where we left off with our Sunday night series from last year. We looked at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and we're going to continue looking at this. Not every verse, not every story. That would take a very long time to get through the book of Genesis if we did. But looking at specifically the patriarchs of faith and looking at where they really excelled in faith, but then also where they really struggled with faith. And we see a little bit of both of that tonight, and we'll see next week especially how Abraham struggled with his faith. The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. Genesis means origin, as you know, and we definitely saw that in our study of Genesis 1 through 11. You have the beginning of the world, right? In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have the beginning of mankind in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You have the beginning of sin in Genesis chapter 3. You have a new beginning for the, for the post-world flood or post-flood world um, there in Genesis 6 through Nine. You have in Genesis 11, the beginning of different languages. Remember the story of the Tower of Babel. And you could probably add a lot more uh, other beginnings as well, but those are, the, those are the main ones there in Genesis. Tonight in Genesis 12, we also see that God begins a new work. He begins a new work in a specific person for an eternal reason. A new work in a specific person, that's Abram, for an eternal reason reason. And what we see in Genesis 12, just to kind of get us back into the timeline of uh, biblical history here, remember, this is groundbreaking, Genesis 12 comes on the heels of Genesis 11. That's breaking new ground, isn't it? You with me on that? Say amen. Amen, right? Well, what happened in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and what happened there was God was judging the people that weren't spreading out. They weren't going into, into other places. They all had kind of, kind of uh, stayed in one area there, and God came down and he judged them, and he broke up their languages, and they broke up by a family group and started to scatter all over the face of the earth. And so that happens in, in chapter 11, but then in chapter 12, a person is called by God. So here you have God's judgment on people in Genesis 11, and then you have God coming back to a specific person and calling him. God doesn't just leave uh, mankind, okay, I'm done with you. That's the last time you've messed up. We're done with you. He didn't, do it with, he didn't do it at the flood, right? He kept knowing his family and kept the human race going. He does the same thing here as well. So you have grace towards mankind coming on the heels of judgment towards mankind. And that's how God works a lot through scripture. You'll see him in one chapter, it seems like judgment that is being poured out on his people, being poured out on mankind. And then he'll come back right or, you know, the, the next story or the next chapter, or sometimes even the next verse, and he pours out his grace. We saw a little bit of that this morning. If you were with us this morning, where you see those first three verses of Ephesians 2 are really sour, really negative. But what's coming? Verse 4 is coming. God who is rich in mercy, his grace by which he saved us. And so God does that. You have grace coming on the heels of judgment. Genesis 12 would be considered the beginning of the nation of Israel. But in order to get kind of a run up to chapter 12, I want to start in chapter 11, verse 27. I'm going to read chapter 11, verse 27, through Genesis 12, verse 9. This is the, the passage we're going to cover this evening. 11:27 says, This is the genealogy of Terah. 
Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begat Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. Here we see the early chronology of Abram, the early chronology of Abram. And if you read through that, it can be a little confusing. A little challenging to understand that. You say, wait a second, I thought God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and he went into Canaan. Yes, but we've got this little little stopover in Haran where his father, in, in verse 31, it says, Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and their, and their wives and their people, and they went to Haran. It can be a little bit confusing. When exactly did God call Abram? When, when, when it, was it when he was in Haran, or was it when he was in Ur? Where was Abram living at the time? Who was with him? Did the call of God in Abram's life all come at once on him, or was it in stages where God led him? And you look at that and you say, that's a little confusing. I'm not quite sure exactly what the timeline is. Where did God step in and call Abram? Go in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Not the place you would think to go to get the chronology of Abram, but Stephen in his message before the religious leaders in Israel, right before Stephen dies, in Acts chapter 7 here, he gives us uh, just a helpful couple verses that show us the chronology of Abram. Abram's early life. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse number 2. Stephen says to the people that are really trying him in a way, he says, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. 
And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land, that would be Canaan, Israel, in which you now dwell. God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. And he goes through kind of the rest of the story there in Acts 7 of the, the people of Israel. But here early on, this is helpful for us because it gives us, the, it gives us the chronology of where Abram is when God talks to him. And I put this up on the screen for you. Abram's timeline, first of all, he lived in Ur. He lived in Ur because it tells us there that the, the call of, of God to Abram in Acts chapter 7 came when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So in chapter 11, verse 31, when it says that Terah and Abram and Lot and their wives and their people went from Ur to Haran, that was after the call of God on Abram's life. So God had already called Abram. In chapter eleven thirty-one, it kind of looks like Terah is the one leading there. He's taking his family there, but the call of God had actually already happened on Abram's life at that time. And according to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, that's where when he was in Ur, when he was in Mesopotamia, that's where God appeared to him initially. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Secondly, he traveled to Haran. He moved to Haran, according to chapter 11, verse 31. He moved there with his father, Terah, and his nephew, Lot. And it is there in Haran that chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 take place, where God must reinitiate or re, uh, redo his call. Not redo, but... Uh, uh, re-communicate his call to Abram when he was there in Haran. Now, he stays in Haran, according to chapter 12, verse 4, until Terah dies. Abram is 75 years old when he leaves Haran, and he travels to Canaan. So we do kind of see this progressive, these progressive steps that he took. He did not just go from Ur all the way straight to Canaan. He went from Ur to Haran. This is a picture here that might help you a little bit. Down here in the bottom right corner, you have Ur. That would be in the Chaldees, uh, Mesopotamia. That red line, there's a couple alternate routes that people say, well, he might have taken this route or he might have taken that route. The solid red line, if you can see that back there, that would be the path that he probably took to Haran, which is in the box up there. And then down into Canaan would be here on the left uh, as well over by the Mediterranean Sea. So that's his route, but it was in stages. God called him out of Ur. He goes to Haran. God re-communicates re his call to him, and then he continues on his journey. What I want us to see tonight through this story is two things, two major truths that are true in this story, true throughout the biblical record, and true throughout our lives as well. These are two truths that, that you just cannot get around in Scripture. The first one is that God chooses and calls by grace. God chooses and calls by grace. We've talked about this a little bit recently in our study in Ephesians 1 and 2. Secondly, Abram, or insert anybody's name there, responds and obeys by faith. That's, that's the, these are the main storylines, the main outlines that we see in the story of Abram here, but then also really the whole story of the patriarchs, and in some ways the whole story of Scripture, and in many ways the whole story of our lives, that God calls and chooses and, and brings us to him by grace, we respond and obey by faith. It doesn't matter who you're talking about. These two things are going to be true. Think about Moses. Did Moses deserve to be called by God? He was guilty of murder. And God calls him there at the burning bush, and Moses responds 
by faith. Was it really, really, really strong faith that he had? No, he had five excuses as to why he didn't want to do it. And yet God works through that. He steps out by faith, called according to God's grace, and he continues. You could look at Joshua's life, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Peter. The apostle Paul definitely would fall into this category. And guess what? You and me also. God calling and choosing by grace, we responding by faith. So let's talk about this first one here, how we see it in Abram's life. God chooses and calls by grace. Why did God choose Abram? Why did God choose Abram? Well, let's look here as to why he didn't choose Abram. or the, Not the, the things in Abram's life that obviously God, these weren't the reasons that God chose Abram. First of all, it certainly wasn't because of Abram's goodness. Certainly wasn't because of Abram's goodness. If you want to turn there, you can, but just one quick verse in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, it gives us some insight into what Abram and his family were like before God called him. This might be one of those verses you just want to kind of jot to the outside of chapter 11 and chapter 12 there in Genesis. Joshua 24, 2, it says this, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. They served other gods. Gods. Joshua 24 2 tells us that Abram's family were idol worshipers who served other gods, his father, his uncle, and I don't think there's any reason not to think that Abram was right there doing it with them. Why wouldn't he have? He was an idol worshiper just like everyone else in his family. The idols that they had in, in Ur were, were many, but one specifically, Nanar, or actually, the, uh, I think it's the Babylonian name for this god is actually S-I-N. I'm not exactly sure how they pronounced it, but it's interesting. We would pronounce it sin, which idol worship is obviously sin. So it's easy to remember that way. But this is Nenar, just some, some different pictures and things here that you see. This was the moon god that they were very well known for worshiping in Ur. And I think it's very plausible that Abram worshiped this god and all the other gods of Ur with his dad, with his uncle, with his brothers, with his nephew, and with the whole town, just like anybody else did in that area. So God calling Abram was certainly not because of his goodness. Think about this. Worshiping other gods was exactly what God didn't want this new nation that he's creating in Abram to do, right? How many times has God come to Israel and he says, don't follow other gods? Or how many times does he have to come to them and punish Israel because they did follow other gods? So it wasn't like a God called Abram because Abram had like a really good head start on the goodness of God, right? He didn't didn't have a head start on God's plan. It wasn't because Abram was really good at what God wanted him to do that God called him. Abram wasn't chosen because he was good. He, He was chosen because God was going to make him good. That's the work of God in his life. And is that not true for each one of us? Not called because we are good, called because the power of God can make us good in Christ, right? Secondly, Abram was not called because he was some great nation builder. Abram was not called because he was some great nation builder. 
Now, God promises Abram in chapter 12 that he would make of him a great nation. But remember, God didn't call him because Abram had a great head start on nation building. Chapter 11, verse 30 tells us what? He chose a guy who had no kids. No kids. It says Sarah was barren and had no child. And at this point, where actually the point when they leave Haran in, in chapter 12, verse 4, he's 75 years old. So he's already getting, getting along there. So it's not like Abram had a head start on what God wanted to accomplish in him. And isn't that just like God? Isn't it just like God to do that? He does exactly what we think he wouldn't do. Oh, we joke about that, don't we? Say, so don't tell God what you don't want to do, because that's oftentimes exactly what he'll have you do. And God works like that. He goes into those situations and he says, yeah, that's not how I would have done it, right? We, we would say, hey, pick the guy with a bunch of kids and build a nation out of him. And God says, no, I'll take the guy with no kids. And I'm going to build, make out of you a great nation. God doesn't do what we think he would do. Think of the, the early history of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, born in a stable, chased uh, to, to be killed by Herod. We would think the Messiah, as Israel did, you know, coming on, you know, some sort of kingly thing, and he comes down, and he, he just, you know, royalty, and just, you know, everybody knows who he is, and he was born in, in, in almost unknown circumstances, almost unseen except for the angels and, and, and the, the shepherds there. God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, doesn't he? And we look at Abram and we say, had to be the grace of God. Had to be the grace of God because it wasn't because of Abram. Thirdly here, it wasn't because Abram had great knowledge of God. God did not choose Abram because he had great knowledge of God. The only thing Abram knew of God was what God had revealed to him in his appearances to him. And when we come to chapter 12, it's probably the second time that God has appeared to Abram. Probably the second time. And what we have of what God had told Abram is two and a half verses. That's it. That's all we have. That's all the communication that we have recorded. I'm not saying maybe there wasn't other things that God communicated to him, but what we have recorded is two and a half verses of scripture. Before that, before God revealed himself to Abram in that way, did Abram know anything about the one true God? I would assume no. If he did, it was probably some hearsay, maybe some stories and things that had gotten passed down, but nothing that was really tangible, nothing that really, really stuck in him. Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, that God appeared to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees. He appeared to him when he was still in Ur, when he was in Mesopotamia. What's interesting about this is that's actually the first recorded appearance of God in Scripture since he was with Adam and Eve. Now, it says he talked to Noah, but the Bible never says that he appeared to Noah. So the first recorded appearance to Abram since he would have been with Adam and Eve. Interesting here, God coming to a person who probably has little or no prior knowledge of God. How did Abram know it was God? How did Abram know that it was God? My seminary professor teaching through Old Testament, this this part of it, he made this statement. He said, God is self-validating. God is self-validating. He does not have to prove he exists. 
He just exists. Isn't that true? Think about the first verse of scripture, Genesis 1.1. No great run up to it. Nothing showing, okay, this is God and this is who he is and this is what he does and this is why he exists and this is my apologetic for God. He just shows up on the scene, right? He's self-validating. He shows up and we see that all through scripture. He shows up in people's lives and he says, okay, this is what we're gonna do now. He validates himself. And it says, in the beginning, God. And we go from that point on and we say, he exists. We don't have this long discourse on how he got there and what he, no, he just, he's self-validating, he's eternal. There's something also, and I think some of us have probably experienced this in some way or another. There's something also about being in the presence of God that you just know it's God, right? I don't know what theological word I could put on that, but I think Abram knew he was in the presence of God because it was God. What must have that been like? Think about that. Put yourself in Abram's shoes for for just a minute. What must that have been like? Here's Abram surrounded by all his false gods, his God, his moon God and all these other gods. And he's surrounded by his family that also worships false gods, surrounded by his false gods. And then the, the real God appears, just appears to him and calls him to do something. What is that like? What, what must that have been like? In Acts chapter 7, verse 2, Stephen calls God, the true God, he calls him the God of glory. He says, the God of glory appeared to Abram. Now think about that. The God of glory appears to Abram as he's surrounded by all these other gods of no glory. No glory whatsoever. This God was alive and Abram knew it. This God was real, and Abram knew it. This God was powerful, and Abram knew it. He's surrounded by these gods that were made, but he realizes God is a maker. He's surrounded by all these gods that were dead. He realizes God is alive. He's surrounded by all these gods that are mute, and God speaks to him. He's surrounded by all these gods that were powerless, and God comes down, and he is powerful. There's a great uh, section of scripture in Psalm chapter 115 that goes through this description of, of false gods and idols. It says this, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, So where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. He's saying they're, they're made, they're created. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. When God appeared to Abram, I think he knew right away, this God's different. This one's different. It's not like these. They they have noses, they have ears, they have eyes, but they're not doing anything. In fact, I'm the one that has made these idols. And God comes in and he realizes this is no God formed with human hands. 
This is something entirely different. Abram knew it was God because God was unlike any other. God is like unlike any other. Isaiah 45 verses 5 and 6, it says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. What did God see in Abraham that made him the object of God's call? Nothing. Nothing. It is, it is not what Abram had done that attracted God to Abram. Rather, it was what God could do in Abram. That's grace. That's grace. And the same is true for all of us. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. No other reason. And no other reason but the grace of God. God's call of Abram was all of grace. Abram found grace after the flood, just like Noah found grace before the flood. Remember Genesis 6, verse 8? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abram finds that same grace after the flood. God calls him out of Ur, out of idolatry. By grace, God called Abram and chose to work in him, to work with him, and to work through him. I want you to think of something, though, for a second, and that is this. Who else in Ur did God call? No one. Who else in Abram's family did he call? No one. Who else in the world at that time did God choose to make a great nation out of? No one. Who else did he set apart for a special relationship with him? No one. That doesn't seem fair, does it? It, seems, it doesn't seem right that God would call Abram and, and, and not everyone else. And, and, and yet that's how it happened. You know, it may not meet our criteria of fairness, but God did it and therefore it's right. And God's actions don't have to pass our fairness test first. God is God. We just read that in Psalm 115. God is God. He does as he pleases. So first of all, tonight, the one thing that we see in Abram that is true throughout scripture and history is that God chooses and calls people by grace. Secondly, Abram responds and obeys by faith. Look at chapter 12, verses one to three. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And God gives him here in verses two and three, several promises about his future, promises about his land that he would go into, his descendants. He says some of these things would be, would be happening in his life very soon, you know, in the next few years. Others of them, it would be millennia later that they would come around. For instance, the last one, it says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's that referring to? It's actually referring to Jesus Christ, who would be a blessing, who would offer salvation to all families of the earth. Here's the promises of God to Abram. I just put them in a list here for us to see them. The promises of God to Abram, he says, he will make of you a great nation. He will bless you. He will make you great. And we see that to be true. Abram is, was a very wealthy man, a very uh, influential man in that area at that time. He says, you will be a blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Interesting here, we referred back to this when we talked through Esther. Remember when, when Haman tried to come at the Jews? And we remembered the promise that God had said, if someone curses you, I will take care of them. And we saw that in Haman, didn't we? In the book of Esther. And then he says, all families of the earth will be blessed through 
you. I think if you could summarize this list in one word, it would be this word. It shows up several times. I think the word is blessing. I think that's the word that could summarize what God was going to do in Abraham's life, Abram's life at this time. God had sovereignly chosen to bless Abram. Now notice the blessings of two and three come on the heels of a command in the end of verse one. In the end of verse one, he tells Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So we have this command, this, this, this action that, that Abram has to take. How does Abram respond to this command and to the promises of God? He says, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm gonna, I'm, I promise all these things to you, verses two and three. But here's my command to you. Abram, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to this command? In verse four, it tells us, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. He responded and he obeyed by what? Faith. I would call this incredible faith. Just absolutely incredible faith. And I'll show you why in just a second. The verse we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, verse eight, it says exactly this. How did Abraham do it? He did it by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's an incredible part to this. God didn't say, okay, on this date, you're going to be at this place, and I'm going to show you this land. No, he says, go, and I'll show you where you're supposed to go. Talk about walking by faith and not by sight. This is why I think this is incredible faith on Abraham's part. What assurance did Abram have that this God keeps his promises? In many ways, Abram had just met this God, right? What assurance did Abram have that this God, here God makes all of these promises in verses two and three. What assurance did Abram have that God was going to keep those promises? What prior knowledge or experiences did Abram have of God? Think about that. What events in Abram's life could he point to and say, okay, God's given me these promises and because he's done this, 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 and this in my life, therefore I know he will do these promises. But I don't think Abram had a lot to go on. God had appeared to him probably twice at this time. And before that, this God, the true God, excuse me, was a brand new person to him. Abraham was, Abram was very young in his relationship with God. I mean, he was, certainly was growing in his knowledge of God, but it was brand new. And yet, he has faith in God. That's why I think it's incredible. He didn't have a whole lot to go on. He had a whole lot less information in past historical record of God's faithfulness and God's goodness than we do. And yet he acted by faith. You realize that? He lived by faith. We have thousands of years of human history. Thousands of stories in biblical record of God's goodness and faithfulness and yet we often don't act in faith, live by faith, do we? We prefer sight over faith, right? Yet we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. I think it's incredible faith that Abram gives here. 
He doesn't have as much information to go on as we do. We can look back and say, okay, I see that in his life. I see that in his life. I see it in my dad's life. I see it in, in my grandfather's life. I see it in this person over here. I see it in this historical person. We say God has proven his faithfulness, and we go on that. I don't know that Abram had all that, and yet he still acted by faith. Now, I want to show you one other thing about Abram because this is that, that up and down of Abram and his faith because we don't want to get the idea that Abram was perfect in some way, that his faith was just so stellar that he, was, he was, had reached some sort of perfection. Look at chapter 11, verse 31. It says in verse 31 that, that his family had gone to Haran. Look who's with him, Terah, his dad, his grandson, Lot. Chapter 12, verse 4 it says, when Abram departed after God had given him that command, it says Lot went with him. What's wrong with that? What was the command? In verse 1, do you see it? He says, get out of your country from your family. Get away from your family. So we see here that Abram had faith, but his faith was not without fault. It was not perfect faith, was it? He was supposed to remove himself from his family. And the first time he hears God's call to him in Mesopotamia, in Ur, he goes to Haran and his dad and his nephew are with him. His dad dies and now he hears the call of God reiterated to him and he leaves again to head to Canaan, but Lot is still with him. So Abram acted in faith, but it was imperfect faith. And I think this is important to us because here we see some of the character and nature of God, and I think Abram did as well for the first time. We see that God is a God of mercy and grace. God is a God of mercy and grace. He is long-suffering toward our foibles and our, and our failures. God is not looking for perfect faith because what? We can't give that. We don't have perfect faith. What he's looking for is faith. What did Jesus say? He said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, if I were to hold a mustard seed in my fingers, it wouldn't matter because you wouldn't be able to see it. And Jesus said, even tiny faith, even tiny faith is powerful faith. Why? Here's why. Because a little faith placed in a big God is a whole lot more powerful than a lot of faith placed in a little me. Let me say that again. A little faith placed in a big God is a whole lot more powerful than a lot of faith placed in a little me. And here God calls Abram by his grace. Abram responds and obeys by faith, even though it wasn't perfect. And we're going to see next week when we get into the second part of chapter 12, how he goes down into Egypt and he kind of just messes up bad. You say, what happened to his faith there? It was a struggle. Our journey of faith, our life of faith is up and it's down sometimes. And then it's up and then it's down and then maybe it evens out. And it's all over the place sometimes. In Hebrews 11, in the hall of faith, we saw this earlier. He goes through, the, the author of Hebrews goes through Abram's life and there is, there is mention of Abram, his faith, all of it, the good things that he does, his obedience but there is no mention in the hall of faith of Abram's disobedience. Yet it was all over the place, as is true with everyone. There's mention of his obedience. There's not mention of his disobedience. In Genesis 15, 6, which is then quoted in Romans 4, which is also quoted in Galatians 3, it says that Abram 
believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. He believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. A.W. Pink in his book, uh, Gleanings in Genesis, he says this, and I end with this tonight. He says, for Abraham, his faith was counted for righteousness. His lack of faith was forgiven. That's powerful because that's true in our lives. We see in the hall of faith that Abram's faith is pointed out, his obedience to God, but his disobedience has been forgiven. Now, Abram lived with some of the consequences of that disobedience at times, and we will too. But in our standing before God, our faith is counted for righteousness. Our lack of faith is forgiven. That's the kind of God that we are called to put our faith in. That's the God of mercy and grace and power that we are called to live by faith, to walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray.